Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's Yas here and I'm calling today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months, I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialling a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by a co-host and elite coach educator, Gerard Jones. Now these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT live on Twitter space if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise, I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, slightly different, and for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in where myself and Joa will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you can let me know your thoughts on the new format, and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at thecoachesnet. Once again, that is at thecoachesnet. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Craig Johns. Morning, Craig. Afternoon, evening, depending on where you are in the world. Um, how are you, Craig? I'm very well, thanks, Yas. It's, it's good to see your smiling face. Awesome. Craig, um, just before we get into the real thick of the conversation, maybe a brief insight around who you are, what you do, um, and then we'll dive in straight from there. Yeah, thanks. So, Right now, I'm a high-performance leadership expert and also the CEO and managing partner of Speakers Institute Corporate. I grew up in New Zealand on a small farm with the nearest neighbour a mile away. So when COVID hit, I went into my happy place, so to speak. It was like, ah, oh, this feels like growing up when I was a kid. Uh, you know, for me, I've always had that mindset of, you know, a very positive mindset, I would say, and always looking at, you know, what is it that I can achieve? I always had that mindset of what is it? This is what I want to do and how am I going to get there? And I kind of felt frustrated when I was little watching other people who just seemed lost in the world. They they didn't know what to do, what they were supposed to be doing in the world. And for me, I had real clarity as a youngster that one, I wanted to be an athlete. I knew following that I would be a coach. And I also wanted to be a CEO of a big company globally at some point. So my my direction was always very, very clear uh, from there. So I managed to win 10 national titles across four individual sports of triathlon, duathlon, 
cycling and mountain biking and then also represented New Zealanders in field hockey as a junior, never got to play, just made the squad and then had to make that choice between the individual or team sports. Did quite a bit of work in sports science through, especially in New Zealand, around some of the Olympic sports and professional sports. And along the way, I've always coached. So as, so from a very, very young age, um, you know, my first coaching stint would have been 12 years old, where I was given the reins to look after a provincial team for a session. And that was kind of really empowering at that age to, to have that opportunity. And then from the age of 15, was into paid coaching for swimming, triathlon, surf lifesaving and, and field hockey over a number of years, including being a national head coach for triathlon in Asia. I transitioned uh, after a few years um, into the world of corporate and really wanted to push myself in that realm. I loved high performance, but I, I wanted to have a bigger impact on the world. And as much as I loved that high performance and ability to work with individuals i also i don't know for me there was just something missing and so i loved the aspect of moving into c-suite and being a ceo and now in a position where we train a lot of leaders from emerging right through to global leaders in some of the biggest com companies around the world uh so yeah that's that's kind of a, a bit of a snapshot of my life that's awesome obviously you know within that snapshot you've kind of linked into a range of depth and um, wealth of experiences both in the corporate world and obviously in sports in, in particular um there's a couple of key things that kind of really just jumped out at me so i'm going to start with with this one um you said coaching right along the whole way through um first in at 12 um and you also talked about how it was empowering but i just want to talk a little bit more about that how, how important do you think it is for uh young athletes for young people in general to get the opportunity to demonstrate leadership or being a leadership in a capacity at such a young age? One, you've got that ability to see it from a different perspective. I think when you're an athlete, you become very single-minded uh, at times. When you're a coach, you've then got to look at it from different perspectives. How do you motivate someone else? How do you, how do you see it through a lens of another athlete or group of athletes? And so I found that really good. But the when I talked about empowering, you know, when you have someone that looks at you, you know, you're only 12 years old and goes, right, I see you've got talent and I'm going to empower you to run a session. So literally they said, you know, you've got a whole entire session. What do you want to do? And, you know, obviously they gave me a couple of parameters around, you know, they're heading into a tournament coming up. You know, what are you seeing? What do you feel? And so they really gave me the reins. And I thought that was quite fascinating that you know people who are really effective coaches and had coached really really well in their careers were just giving this opportunity to someone really really young and just saying hey you know what we trust you we back you yes we're going to be here watching just in case but we back you and i think that's important but just on that obviously you know that's that's a big piece you know there's going to be a lot of coaches thinking it's great that the coaches trusted you but how do we get to a point where we can trust our athletes how do, you know, what does it take for the athlete to demonstrate or what does it take for us as coaches to get to the point where we can actually hand over those reins? Yeah, I think there's there's always a period when you're dealing with athletes where you've got to train them first, right? There's that training, teaching mode where you are pretty much sharing lots and you get them to do something. Before you start moving more into that coaching space where you're asking them questions, you're getting them to figure things out for themselves. I think when you're at that point 
and you can sense that someone has a level of responsibility. They have a sense of uh, a bit of a service mindset that they want to help other people. Then I think we should trust them. I think we should give them. We a lot of the time as coaches, we tend to think that we're the ones who need to know more than the athletes. We're the ones who need to show them what to do. But the athletes are the ones on the field. They're the ones on the road or in the pool or in the gym. And they can feel things as well. They see things. And and a lot of the time we don't give them enough credit to actually ask them, what do you think? How could we do this better? And they have the answers a lot of the time. But we, we kind of feel that, oh, we're in this position where we should know more. So... I, I think it's too risky to hand over the reins sometimes. And so obviously you need to set some boundaries, but you need to give them some flexibility to go, you know what, here's an opportunity to see it through, uh, to give them a chance to try and help other people to maybe even enhance themselves. Mm. And in the long run, it's going to, you know, give that person, you know, especially, you know, sometimes the more talented kids can sometimes get, their ego gets a bit too high and so they become a bit self-centered. So this gives them a chance to think outside of themselves and a little bit more holistic at other people and, and what their roles may be and how they work as well. But let's talk about that. You know, you said it was quite empowering for you. How did that then, you know, transform itself, you know, or transcend itself into your, you know, your playing career or your, you know, your journey as an athlete in the following years after that, at 12 years old to get that experience? Did it shift the way that you maybe applied yourself in training? Did it, did it make you think differently about what you wanted to go and start doing at that point? And how, you know, you said earlier on that your direction was quite clear. Um, obviously, we never knew what was going to end up happening off it, but I think you were very clear on what you wanted to achieve as a on a grand on a grand scheme of things. Um, so, how, how did that impact you going forward? Uh, look, I don't think it was that one instance. My on my dad's side, they were all into field hockey. So my granddad and my dad both coached provincial teams. And, you know, I, I think dad had the potential to go on and coach a national team, but he didn't have any education. And he kind of, I think maybe that was a bit of a limiting belief for him that he needed that education to be able to progress. And he also had the farms. So he didn't really have the time to to put into that. Mum's side were all into cricket. So both my granddad and my uncle were very, very good at cricket, both captains, both coaches of provincial teams. And so there was that grounding there already and very much from my both mum and dad, very much service minded. My mum was a nurse and plus involved in the community. Dad was always on the board of trustees. He was always, you know, on the committees of sports teams. And so they were always involved in kind of helping the community in a way. So I kind of grew up in a space where it was a lot about giving first and receiving second. Um, which I think keeps your your feet grounded as an athlete too along the way. And so every time you kind of get into a space where you might be getting a bit too focused on yourself, I, I think you know when you're in a position of coaching, it kind of brings you back down a little bit and and keeps you a bit more not so much balanced, but a little bit more aware that there's there's more than just you in this world, and there's more than just what you're trying to achieve. There are other people that need to be involved as well. I think I think it's a great point in, in in the fact that essentially it helps you to build your empathy, right? Um, I'm just now thinking wider from your own journey. Then you know how, how much of a part does this play into your journey and and some of the successes that you've had? Because you know we spoke very briefly off air in that 
you know, often people assume that high-performing behaviors are are maybe exclusive for high-performing environments, but obviously these behaviors have to be learned somewhere. They have to be. They have to be. Um, I don't think people are just born with them. I think there's probably things like you've touched on there about you know the influences around us, the environment that we've grown up in that expose us to some of these things. So you know, what are some of the things that you maybe think you know did influence that early on and it really started to set the set the scene for you around actually these are key pivotal moments for me as in terms of what what you went on to achieve and and I guess the the grit and determination within it that it took to you know to perform at that level that you did end up getting to mm. the, the the whole nature and nurture discussion that happens you know for me leaders or athletes can all be developed along the way um, coaches can be developed uh, and so you, but those that become world class, I think there is definitely some nature involved, um, and also something else. When you look at those superstar athletes or the superstar coaches, 99% of the time there's something inside their belly that fuels them. They, you know, you look at the, let's look at um, Lance Armstrong for instance, right? So he grew up single mom. Um, he he hated the world. He was trying to he was trying to beat the world because of what had happened. And then obviously then he gets dealt the big blow of cancer. And you know a lot of people focus on the drugs, so to speak. But when you look at where he had a death sentence and the amount of cancers and the size of the cancers throughout his body, he really shouldn't have lived. And so for him, it was just an opportunity that I, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not taking no for an answer and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And, you know, sometimes he, you know, he may have pushed the boundaries there and we all know that, right? He pushed the boundaries too far. Um, there maybe wasn't a clear enough boundary for him in the environment that was around him. But if we look at, you know, all these people, there, there is something that really fuels them as well. So when we talk about high performance, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions in the world where, uh, you know, people talk about all these high-performing habits, all these high-performing things. Yes, they are, but to me, they're just performance things. The high performance is another level, and it's and it's that ability to take those baseline fundamentals to another level, and it and it needs to be fueled with some sense, I suppose, of a very narrowed vision, which can be a detriment at times. We all know this. But it needs to be very narrowed so that you're removing all the distractions so you are 100% focused on what you're trying to achieve. Now, in some environments, that's that may not be possible. You know, if you want to have a healthy relationship in your family, if you want to have a healthy social life, etc., you, you sometimes cannot do that in the environment you're in. So environments do come into play as well. But in most cases, anyone can develop I believe anyone can develop the the fundamentals of what leads to high performance, which is living a, a, a high level of performance at any one time. And they don't, it doesn't matter what you do in the world, whether you're an athlete, you're a mum, you're a farming, you're a CEO, you're a coach, those fundamentals don't change at all. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I think, you know, spot on in that, you know, conversations I'm often having with people and coaches in particular is that, just because the they're not you know you're not in a high performing environment specifically doesn't mean that you can't exhibit high performing behaviors um mm. but that you know i think there's something really key in what you said to start off with in that again another, another belief i have 
I say to parents all the time, especially when I'm working with, with, with players and uh, even trying to try and support coaches, is that they can have the best training programs, they can have the best facilities, they can have the best everything. But fundamentally, the one thing that a coach probably cannot coach, in my opinion, is their belief and their innate desire to want something. They have mm. to want it. We can't coach them to want it. They have to want it. It has to be innate within them. And I do believe that um, quite firmly that, like I said, I can give you, Craig, the best facilities, the best coaching. I can bring the best team of people in to work with you. But if you don't want it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't have someone else wanting it for you. You know, we see a lot of parents who want it for their kids and, you know, the kids may not always want it. And so we, our job as coaches is to try and find what is going to fuel the fire in their belly? What does, you know, get them up so they are focused every time? They, they're they disciplined, they're pushing, they're willing to take risks, they have that ability to go into that uncomfortable zone multiple times. They have the discipline to know when to stop and take a rest and actually apply the things that are required to be a high-performing athlete or, or high-performing person in this world. And... You know, when you talk about the that that real belief and desire, when it comes to high performance athletes, as a coach, you're not motivating them. All right, you you're not in motivation mode. They have enough motivation. In most cases, you're you're actually trying to pull back the motivation because they're sometimes pushing too hard. They're so driven that they they may miss the importance of recovery. They may miss the importance of focusing on the basics. And they drive too hard. So you've sometimes got to temper that motivation. If you're a coach who's motivating, then it's in a, you're in a dangerous position. Why? Because the athletes need to keep coming back to you. Like their reason for living, breathing, doing something is directly related to you as the coach. If you're in motivational mode. I like to think of coaches should be in an inspiration mode. You need to inspire people to draw out their own internal motivation, right? You don't motivate them. You inspire them to draw out their own motivation. So you need to find out what is going to fuel each person individually because they're all different. What fuels their fire so that they feel motivated to really drive forward for something on their own or collectively, if it's part of a, a team, to do incredible things in this world. And when it comes to belief, a lot of the time, as I mentioned before, there's they're either pushing too hard, they're so highly motivated, or they're held back by limiting beliefs and things that that something has happened in the past and they have then formed their own meaning in their head. And now they've created a new belief, which actually prevents them from being who they are. So we, we've got to be able to pull the reins back sometimes, but plus we need to unlock the chain, so to speak, to let people free. I think they're two of the biggest roles that we have as coaches. It's quite interesting because obviously, you know, you talk there about inspire versus motivate. And I think um, I, I fully get what you mean. There'll be a lot of coaches out there thinking, oh, it's their job to motivate. And I think uh, I think there is occasions where that might need to happen. It might need to be, but I think more from a perspective of reassurance, right? Mm. Um, and encouragement as opposed to a constant source where the players are fundamentally reliant on you. Um, I do, I do think, for me, the coach's role should be one where they aim to almost make themselves redundant. 
so that the coach isn't needed by the players, but the coach is maybe wanted by the players or the athletes um, because of the impact that they've been able to have, because of the, you know, because of the development they've been able to achieve under the, under the guidance or, the, or supervision of that individual, um, and even just the environment that's been set around them, the joy and the you know, pleasure and, and and the successes they've achieved within that. So let's talk about that. And obviously, you've you've you know you've gone on and um, you mentioned that obviously you had to make a decision between team sports and individual sports. Um, you've had a, quite a lot of successes in the individual in individual capacity. What shifted you one way or the other at, at that first stage? Yeah, so maybe I'll go back to uh, some younger years and a couple of things that happened. So uh, had an interesting first week of school. My first week of school, I won the cross country. I fainted and I got hit in the hit above the eye and required stitches by a baseball bat. So I had a real adventurous first week of school. <laughs> Um, which then led, which, you know, a couple, one was I'm, I'm very courageous, right? I want to get part of the action. You know, I, you know, for me, I, I, I wanted to win. I think that was always there. Uh, but there was also something there we didn't pick up, which was something to do with my heart. And between the ages of five and 12, I would faint three or four times a year, which is out of the ordinary. Like you, you might, most kids might faint three or four times in their entire primary school, I was doing it three or four times a year. They could never work out what was happening and I was never really in too much danger. So, you know, and at the age of 12, it stops. We didn't worry about it then. It never affected my sporting uh, up until that point. I don't think, if I remember correctly, I don't think it affected me then. And then when I was 16, I come off the biggest swim camp I'd ever done. I was absolutely flying to a point where people were stopping and going, what's just happened to you? You know, like I just went to a whole nother level where I felt extremely free. I was in flow in a session and then woke up the next morning, which was New Year's Day 2000 and I think 16, if I remember, yeah, 2016 at six o'clock in the morning, went to go to the bathroom, blacked out and was unconscious for over five minutes. Uh, my dad at that point had just had a hip replacement. My mum and sister were at the cow shed Dad was trying to ring mum and they were thought, oh, look, Craig and dad are at home. They'll be okay. So they didn't bother. Dad's on crutches. He's looking at me going, mm. he's like, mate, this guy's dead. Like literally looking at me as I was dead and wasn't moving. Was, you know, his eyes were sunking in. Uh, he managed to, you know, hit me a few times with the, with, with the crutch. <laughs> I think he describes it. And... And I sort of came to, but I couldn't move for the next 30 minutes. You know, here I am, like the fittest I'd ever been in my life. He manages to get over, get mum, my sister. I'm still lying on the floor. They come back and they managed to get me up. I was like dead weight. I, I got to the bed, which is in the lounge where dad had had made a bed um, so he could watch TV with his while he had his hip replacement. And then I kind of went to sleep. I got up about two hours later everyone was at the breakfast table and i said hey i'm gonna go for a 40k bike ride today and just before i got to the table i said i'm gonna go and i fainted and i went straight into the bookshelf and i went out for another two and a half minutes um so obviously at this point they the ambulance came in i rushed off to hospital got the defib paddles there um all the cardiologists around trying to figure out what's going on uh, but i was going into uh, atrial fibrillation, so for those who understand it's a regular heartbeat, usually associated with older people and those maybe who have had heart attacks. 
Uh, this is pretty rare in younger people. I had vasovagal syncope and my heart rate at that point was 32 and at night, and actually it still is actually, it hasn't dropped. My, it hasn't gone up, I should say. My resting heart was 32 at night, would drop to 24. And what was, they couldn't figure out like really what was, why I had it. And so they monitored me and I stayed in it for a couple of weeks in an in intensive care and then able to go home. And at that point they said, you need to give up sport. And me being very analytical and strategic was going, okay, at the moment you have zero proof. You've asked all the, the best sport cardiologists in the world. No one's giving proof that for me going back to sport is going to endanger my life. And so within three or four weeks, I went back to sport and within 12 months I had made New Zealand team, New Zealand squad and field hockey and New Zealand team for triathlon in one year. And so it certainly didn't hold me back. I, I did need to be a bit more cautious. But I think from that day, I woke up every day and I was like, thank God I'm alive. You know, there was, I think it was a really different perspective to a lot of athletes. You know, for me, it was thank God I'm alive. So I took away a lot of pressure from myself in a way and I could just race free, I could, etc. And there were a lot more talented people out there than me. And it was more that I was able to maximize my talent knowing that today could be the last day. And, and that was how I thought of it and still do today. You know, for me, it's like, yeah, hey, I'm still alive. I went on to world champs a couple of years later in triathlon. And at that point, it was just too much to do a team sport and individual sport at a really high level. I and then I got to 20, 21 and I started fainting three or four times a day for an entire month. And so at that point, I couldn't drive. I couldn't finish my last university papers and they gave me uh, just a grade. Uh, and I was a bit disappointed because I went from A plus 100% in human anatomy to a, uh, an A minus. And I was the only person that actually got 100% in the exam. And I was like, how do I go to an A minus just because I didn't sit the final exam because of medical things. But anyway, another story. And I one day I was swim teaching. I was holding two 18-month-old kids. I could feel myself start to faint. I had to roll out of the water, put the kids down, and then lay on the side of the pool. And at that point, I gave up. I had to stop everything until they could figure out what was going on. Got put in hospital for sus uh, suspected heart attacks because someone misread the ECG. I've got in the red zone, I've got people dying around me being revived. And I'm like, what am I doing here? I, I feel absolutely fine. And at that point, they said, look, there's only one thing we can do. We've, we've looked at everything. The only thing we can do is to put a pacemaker in and hopefully that will stop you blacking out um, because we cannot solve this. There's some electrical fault happening here. For whatever reason, your heart rate will go from whatever you're doing to below 40 and just hold there. And so I was, as you can imagine, if you're running or, you know, you're doing something and it drops that fast, all you want to do is faint. You know, your body needs oxygen in the brain. And so I gave up sport at that time and really focused on coaching on the sports science and, and really dedicated myself to that. Uh, you know, put on quite a bit of weight and then moved. I had an opportunity to move to Asia. And the day I got there, my mate said, you're going to ride. You, we're going to buy a bike. Uh, so it was it was kind of a space where they gave you a whole lot of money in a brown paper bag and said, go set up your house. And my mate goes, no, nah, you don't need all that money. Just spend some of it on a bike. You're going to get fit again. 
And so I lost 17 kgs in the first year and went on to do Ironman um, Austria. And then, you know, from then on, that's when I won my national titles. I had not won any until that point. And so I won 10 over the next few years. And But I, I think it really comes down to that release of if I, you know, I, I'm just lucky to be alive. I'm lucky to wake up. Um, I was coaching all through that time as well. So it, I wasn't having to worry about living. So I took all the pressure off being an athlete and I could just do it for absolute fun. And I still wanted to win and was still as driven as everyone else, but I didn't have anything holding me back from from achieving. And so, you know, in some ways I'm very grateful for having a, a heart that we still don't know, <laughs> still don't know what's wrong with it and still has caused me to flatline a couple of times since, but you know, I'm still alive. So uh, for me, I'm grateful in that sense that it has given me that opportunity. And I think if I transfer that across to leading or coaching, now I, I'm present. Why? I, I'm absolutely present that moment because I don't know if I'm going to wake up the next day. And and that's how I approach my life. I think it's, it's fascinating because obviously, you know, in a roundabout way, one thing I've taken away from what you've just said is that you inadvertently found your why, right? Like, you know, you found your why in many respects because it's almost like, well, I don't know if I'm going to get this opportunity again, so I'm going to have to give it my all almost. Um, obviously, that's not necessarily the same and, you know, for it for for everyone um but fundamentally that's come from within you because you've had to have a different appreciation for the situation you're in um rather than you know like i said if you take your situation for granted you might not apply yourself to the best of your ability um and i think this is really key because i think what well, something you touched on earlier right is around you've got those people who are highly talented and some people are more talented than others in in, in many respects but actually you know and it's a conversation that you know Again, I'm often I'm often having with coaches and, and athletes around the idea of leisure individuals versus high performing individuals or performance individuals in particular, in the fact that you don't have to be, or rather just because you're working, you know, just because you're operating in a high performing environment, you know, you you hear about athletes all the time, especially you know in in the in football, soccer, where actually they just happen to be really talented, but they don't, they they could not give anything about the game of football or soccer it just happens to be highly talented and they recognize that actually i'm just here to do a job for other people it's no this is it's more than that um and obviously that, that extends itself the other way as well because you can have high performing individuals demonstrating you know high performing habits and behaviors in environments which aren't necessarily considered high performing and they're just recreational and performing uh, you know leisure environments if you like and i think you've kind of in many respects alluded to that in the sense that you know you're going to have those highly talented people but unless they do perform and exhibit these behaviors they're not going to do anything with it so i guess on that then from a coaching perspective in your experiences then how how do you how do you go about helping athletes or just individuals generally even in the work that you do become more aware of those subtle differences mm, good question i just want to touch on something quickly because you talked about the about finding a purpose it wasn't so much about finding my purpose. I think it amplified it. I always had the question, golly, definitely was there at the beginning of high school, maybe even earlier around why aren't people healthier, happier and hungrier for success? And so I think those three things together, because it was my view, I, I saw a lot of talented people that were unhealthy. 
or weren't happy. Or I saw really healthy people um, that were seemed to be happy but weren't hungry for anything. And I'm like, why are you wasting all your talent? So, so that, that question of those three things, and I think that that mindset of that helps me now when I look at individuals and go, okay, cool. Yeah, you've got talent, but are you healthy, happy, and hungry for success? And if you're not, how do I work on one, two, or even three of those things? Um, and, you know, really tying into that question there around the, you know, what it, does it mean to be high performing in a way? It doesn't mean, you know, just because you got talent doesn't mean you're a great athlete or a great human being. Uh, I think it's that importance of, and we hear this hear this more often now, you know, developing the human as well as the athlete and going beyond that. And so with with coaching people, I think you first got to really grasp why are they there? like what what motivates them? And then do you need to go into inspiration mode to draw more of that out? Do you need, is there something holding them back that is preventing them from being that athlete? So, so what is it? Is it a mindset thing we need to deal with? Um, when we look at, uh, kind of jumping a tangent here, but when we look at high performing people and high performing teams, high performing athletes, I'm, I mean the real true high performing ones, they always have a really clear positive vision, right? This is, you know, say say it's a you know uh, a football player in the UK. You know, maybe it's to win the Premiership League, right? Their their vision, their clarity of vision is to stand at the end of the year um, with the EPL trophy. You know, the big holding the big trophy up. That is their big dream, or the Champions Trophy, whatever it may be. That is their dream from a positive. But they always have a negative vision as well, and the negative vision is not the vision they want to achieve. It is the bare minimum standard they will they will drop to or, or allow themselves to drop to. They won't allow themselves to drop below that. So they have these two visions. Everyone thinks it's all positive. It's not. They have a they have really high uh, significance or self worth. Like they they've got some people may consider it as really high ego and and remember ego is healthy until it gets to a space where you use it to a negative point of view or you overdo it. But they have high ego, but they also have extremely high uh, level of uncertainty in them as well. They, they have both, right? So, and, and it's fascinating. A lot of people go, oh, we need to remove their limiting beliefs. Well, first, you can't remove a limiting belief. You can only manage it. But sometimes, should we actually manage that limiting belief? How far should we manage it? Because you still want them fueling it. Because that makes sure that they they don't drop below that minimum level. Yeah, it, it draws the fire in their belly a bit. But I, I think just on that, you know, something you just touched on there, it's made me think um, you can't remove the limiting beliefs; you can only manage it. Um, and you know, slightly off topic, but a conversation I've been having with coaches recently is around identifying potential, right? Um, and in identifying potential, you know, the question I often, I often kind of pose towards uh, coaches is that, are we, I mean, how, how do we know where we're effectively identifying potential? Because fundamentally, if we're looking at it through our eyes, um, there's things that we might not be able to see, right? Um, 
So I'll be limiting them based on what we believe is achievable through our lens. So, you know, mm-hmm. come back to what you said there, you know, you talk about limiting beliefs. Well, is it only a limiting belief for us because we haven't experienced or our experiences show us that maybe that's something, something we would deal with, if that makes sense. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think so too. I mean, it's just made me think as well. What is... Um, you know, what is potential and what is talent, especially when you look at team sport. I, I'm I'm going to stay team here because individuals are a bit different. Like if you're a triathlete, you have to be, you, you can't hide. I'm sorry. You literally can't hide. You could be a bit stronger at one discipline uh, than the other two, or or you could be stronger at two than the third one. Very rarely is anyone really strong at all three. And if you are, then you've got a greater chance of you've been able to dominate more often. But in the team sport, what is potential because you need the leaders you need those that are the glue in the team you need those that are complementary skill sets to others so you can't have a one-size-fits-all as a coach you know and when we look at talent what is it you know it's it can't be just a one as i said a one-size-fits-all for your entire team it cannot be it cannot be uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of a New Zealand record 272 unbeaten streak um, with field hockey. New Zealand record by a long shot. Um, globally, I don't know of any other teams that have gone above that that I'm aware of. So to give you context, that's 16 years without losing a game. They lost one game before that. And they had actually won, it's either four or five years leading into that. So they lost one game in 21 years. And for me, I was able to be in that team for the first five years of that winning streak. So I never lost a game. And, you know, it's really interesting when you start looking at that team. Yes, there was one key person in a way, but there were five leaders in there. But you would only know and there was one leader. Anyone looking from the outside would have only seen one. Those internally could feel the five leaders in that team leading at different roles and everyone knew what it was. It didn't need to be said. They just did their thing and everyone knew when to follow. The all everyone in there knew, like I think all great leaders know also how to be great followers and they need to know when to be a follower. And anyone who thinks they are a leader or thinks they are a captain 100% of the time or thinks they're the coach as the leader 100% of the time, you, you're not going to be that successful. You need to know when to follow. You need to know when it's your role to be a follower, your role to be a connector, et cetera, in that team. And so that that is so crucial. And it was something that was so evident in that team. You know, a number of those people were extremely effective leaders in their own right some in provincial teams some as bank managers Uh, for me I was a head boy but also captains of many teams but in that team I knew my role and it wasn't leading 
I just did my role. That was it. I, I followed, I connected, I did what I needed to do to make sure that team was highly successful. And so when we look at building high-performing teams and, and the talent that's involved, there do needs to be some non-negotiables. You need to determine what they are. You need to determine what they are. And you're not just looking for the most gifted you know, if it's uh, field hockey, 11 players, soccer's the same, right? 11 players on the field or or rugby, 15. You can't just look for the 15 most gifted people. It's not going to work. We saw it with the USA basketball team. So how do we shape that team and bring the right people in to make sure that it works as an ecosystem, not an ecosystem? Mm. I think there's a great point. You, know, you talked there about the USA basketball team. I think we saw it many years ago with the England football team as well. Um, where they probably had what they would consider their golden generation as as a as a collective group of players, but didn't really achieve anything. And I think it was part, partly that it was that they they didn't have the right individuals to develop a team. They just had many talented individuals. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you we hear that it might be the player that's least talented. Actually, they're, they're the glue that keeps everyone together. And you hear about this all the time. So I think you know it's really important to kind of highlight that. But then. In many respects, you know, people will look at that one individual that is the glue for the team and say, well, that yeah, person's not really a high performer, though. So, how, how, you know, how do you how do you get coaches to maybe widen their horizons on that? To widen away from one high performer? Yeah, well, more specifically looking at, right, well, how do we get that, you know, how do we get coaches to think, well, okay, well, this person might not be as talented as the others, but actually they are that they don't need to be that talented because actually that's not their role in the team if you like hmm. yeah look if you've got a superstar if you've got a superstar in your team you need to you need to figure out how to unleash them so they can do their magic right you you, you have to create a team that allows that person to to create the magic but also you need that team to be able to also create magic without that player if that player is injured or that player leaves, how do you still create the magic without that person on the field or on the court or whatever it may be? And so you've, I think it's important this, and this doesn't always happen. So I talked about their creating an ecosystem, not an ego system. So let's look at what they are. An ecosystem is where everyone has really high self-worth and they're focused on themselves. An ecosystem is is a or actually we'll go weak system first so you've got ecosystem ecosystem weak system a weak system is where you get everyone to focus on the collective worth the ecosystem is where you get both the you're focusing on developing both the self-worth and the collective worth because people need to feel importance people need to feel significance so you've got to still focus on that self-worth and the individual and you need to boost them at the right times. You need to challenge them at the right times. But you need to make sure that their belief and their confidence comes up in themselves while also lifting the collective worth. How, how do we know what our role in the team is? What is that higher purpose that we're all driving forward to? Why do we turn up every single week and to make sure we've got each other's back? And so the importance of self-worth and collective worth is so important. So ego is not the problem. Ego is not the problem. It's how we manage the ego with yeah. the collective of the entire group. That's the key when it comes to 
developing a team where you've got a, a an outstanding individual, you've got a group of highly talented people. Now, to be honest, it's really difficult when you've got a lot of talented people because it's got to know you've got to know when to pull them back and how to still keep them motivated and driven when you may put them into a role which is more of a connector or a follower um, situation. And that takes work. That's hard work as a coach. But yeah, that's your role. You've got to figure out how to do uh, it. I think you know, part, part of that is obviously looking at, like you said, the ego piece, right? Because if someone's used to it, and it, I think this is the other piece when I say to coach them, like, you're going to get times where players have, or athletes have come into you from other environments where they've been the star. Um, they've mm. got talent, but they've been the star. And sometimes um, because they've been the star in certain environments, and sometimes in many cases been the star in environments where there isn't really any other stars, um, they have developed an ego, but they've also never been held accountable. Um, so, you know, talk, talk, let's talk about that a little bit, how important you think accountability is in terms of developing athletes and helping them understand their position, their place within the environment, if you like. It's always, I think it's important for coaches as well to create an environment where it's not a right to be on the team, it's a responsibility. And it doesn't matter how good you are, you still have to, um, you've still got to prove your worth to belong in that team. So it's got nothing to do with your, uh, your absolute athletic potential and ability and what you've done previously, you have to prove that you're worthy of, of being on that team. And when I go back to that team that went unbeaten for 272 games, there, there were a lot of gifted people that never made it. They were on their own individual account were better than the players on the team. They never even got a start. Some of them may have made the bench because they, they hadn't taken the steps to understand that they need to they need to fit and belong on the team so it's it's a it's a responsibility to be part of a team and so as coaches we have to make sure that's super clear and we need to create an environment where the all the people that are involved in it have already bought in and they hold each other accountable so it's that permission for each person to hold each other accountable and if the coach is having to hold it, hold a new athlete accountable, it's not really going to work. It needs to be the entire team. And so, therefore, you need to create that permission where they have courage. They can have those uncomfortable conversations. And, by the way, for anyone out there who thinks that high-performing teams, uh, everything's rosy, it's not. There's generally more conflict in those high-performing teams and and challenges because of the diversity that it's required to create a great team. But their ability to separate the problem from the person and be able to deal with anything that is uncertain, they're unsure about, they're uncomfortable about, maybe they have a different perspective, deal with it quickly and openly and let go in a way that is separating the person from the problem. If you can do that, then you're going to start to create a high-performing team where people hold each other accountable too. So what are those really strong what, – what's the real strong DNA of the team? I don't really like values. by. Um, I, I prefer DNA. Why? Because values 
subconsciously will refer someone back to, well, I value this, I value that, which is based on their environment and what they've grown up in. When you come into a new environment and someone says, here are the values you got to live by, they're like, well, hang on, that doesn't quite connect with the values I've grown up with. So I like what is the DNA, what is what is the acceptable behaviors and attitudes and mindset that each person's going to hold each other accountable for. Yeah. I think many, many, many respects, I'm just thinking about what you said, it's, it's really what's the protocol that we're going to follow, right? Because yeah, it, manifest. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, because even in, even in that, that conflict resolution piece that you talked about there around there's going to be things that do happen in these environments it's just they've probably got a clear process in what they're going to follow to kind of get over these problems and they've almost preempted these things are going to happen so they've got processes in place to manage them right um so you know let, let, let's talk, let's talk about that the kid obviously you know high performing environments you know where or, or or not they are going to have these conflict issues what are some effective ways that you think that probably coaches can kind of start to implement within their structures um, that will allow athletes to better better manage these things? Because I'm I'm of the mind that I I go back, you know, we go back full circle and go back to your story around, you know, when you first started getting involved in coaching and you had the coaches watching you coach. I probably I'm probably very much like that when when my players are dealing with conflict amongst one another, I probably just to stand back and watch. And see right how do they manage this um you know provided it doesn't become um a matter of safety then probably i'll i'll, I'll leave i'll leave them to resolve it right because the one thing I, I think is also is that you know if you in order to be better at dealing with conflict you have to well in order to be, in order to in order to be good at conflict resolution you need to be able to deal with conflict mm. <laughs> you need to be thrown in the deep end so you can manage it right Yes, in some ways, but in other ways, you can teach people certain things. And when I talked about separating the problem from the person, there's a couple of simple ways to do that. But before I get to that, to me, I think it's important that you create an environment of nurturing rising talent, what we call nurturing rising talent. So that means you create a space where people are open to share feedback but it always must be, and if it's for a growth mindset perspective or growth uh, feedback perspective, then uh, don't use a feedback sandwich because <laughs> it's fundamentally flawed. Um, but start with a what what I, like I'll use the terms we use, so gem, which is positive reinforcement. So don't just cheerlead and say, "Hey, that was awesome. You were great." Because that's like a sugar hit. We don't actually don't know what that meant. So the positive reinforcement. What did they actually do well? And that being 20% of the conversation or the feedback part of it. Only 20%, don't make it too long, enough to realize that you care, that you've seen something they've done really well, but don't overemphasize it because players will naturally gravitate, um, and this is why the feedback sandwich doesn't work, is because they'll gravitate to the really good things on the front and the end, and they'll miss the middle. Unless the middle is like hitting them with a dagger and it's really personal. But then the opportunity, which is the 80%, needs to be delivered in a way. And there are two words and that, that people use commonly that make something a personal attack. The first word is you. You did this, you did that, you did this, etc. So it's you, it's like, whoa, hey, hang on. <laughs> or it's, why did you do that? So there are times to use why and use you, but not at the beginning of the sentences when you're giving an observation of ways to improve or or that you didn't like something and, and you want to address something. 
So when we go into conflict situations or or areas of we feel that people could improve, it needs to be from the sense where we're separating the problem from the person, where you go, you use sentences like, this is what I observed. I felt, have you considered what I noticed was? So it, it's an observation piece more than direct. So if you can start that early in the culture of your team and grow that through, when you do get hit with the those conflict situations, they've got the tools and the skills to deal with it in a humane way that separates the problem from the person. They can deal with the problem without affecting the relationship because when it comes to conflict, when it comes to uh, any sort of situation where it might get a bit challenging, people generally don't tend to share because of they, they've got fear of the repercussions okay. or they don't want to hurt the relationship you know, they, they want to maintain the relationship, which is so important in a team or a coach-athlete environment. So this way allows people to be able to do that in a way where when it comes to the big, tough calls, we're already ready for it. Like we, we, we are conditioned to that being able to give really strong fear. And by the way, by doing this gem opportunity in a way of separating the person from the problem, you can hit them with some really hard feedback, really, really hard, but they will feel it coming from the right place. It'll come from the heart yeah. and it doesn't feel like a dagger being put in their back or, or in their heart. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's, 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 I'm quite interested that you say that because I'm now thinking back to some of the interactions I've had with players and often. Um, I do start with that piece. You know, here's just an observation. You know, it's just an observation I've, I've made and I've, you, can, you know, I try and engage them in that conversation by sharing the observation and then getting their insight on my observation. Do you agree? You know, what does it, you know, does that resonate with you, or you know, do you do you feel like that's what happened? And just to get their perception on it, right? And but and then kind of tailing on to the back end of what you just said there as well is that even if they don't agree with your information, they don't like your information, and they don't um, see the true value in it in the way that you do, if they fundamentally believe is coming from a good place, they will pay attention to it. Mm. And that's what my experiences have taught me. So, you know, even when I've seen coaches that um, are speaking to certain athletes and uh, you can see the athlete in their minds, they're just not having this coach because mm. the coaches, um, I think it's important as a coach to be passionate, right? It's, it, and, and that passion has to kind of come across. Um, but not passion in the topic itself, but passion in the want and need to try and help this individual. It's almost that 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 genuine care, right? And I think from my experience, athletes they will pick up on that very quickly if you're not genuine. Mm. I think authenticity is key here. So I think for me that that piece is really important. Having their trust, I think, will trump whether you have the right level of experience, knowledge and insight to actually add value. But just having the trust in the first place will be the key that opens the door to allow you to, allow you to support them, if that makes sense. Uh, look, my experience of coaching and leading, 50% of my job is care. You know, is caring for the individual, ensuring that they feel like that you care about what they do and it matters. Cares everything when it comes to coaching or leading, everything. 
you know, and so how do you create that space where they can feel that genuine care? Now, a lot of the time, uh, let's use public speaking, for instance, right? It, it's it's something that I think, what do they say? I think there's a, there's a kind of an interesting quote out there that 90% of people at a funeral would rather be in the casket rather than delivering the eulogy. That's how much we fear speaking in public. The reason why people fear speaking in public is their intention they have. Okay, so the intention is, what am I going to say? Am I saying the right thing? What do people think? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I get proven wrong? So it, it's very self-centered. But if we can shift that intention uh, to what is holding you back and how can I help? We are now in a, we, we now remove the, the, the passion will then come from your bones. It will be embodied, but it's not an attacking passion. The people will feel that passion because your intention is in the right space. It is in a service space, not in a I'm the best space or I need to be significant space in this moment. And so as any time that a coach feels like their, their, their passion is becoming too much, just check where is your intention right now. And for me, like it doesn't matter if I'm having this conversation with you right now and our listeners, my intention naturally is what is holding you back as as the listeners to this and most of you are coaches and how can I help? Like for me, it's not saying this is how you do it or go suck eggs because I'm going to tell you what you already know. It is like, no, this to me is things that I've learned along the way that I feel can help people be more effective in developing a culture or, or leading teams. And so it's really important to understand what place are you coming from? Because when we can feel the passion coming from every single part of your body, and that's not an aggressive passion, it's a, it's a care passion, it's a deep care that no matter what, I'm going to help you be the best individual and the best team I possibly can. I think, it's, I think you're spot on, Craig, because I think um, for me, it's the intention. If they can, if they can feel that that's the intention, if they can, if they can identify that's the intention, then you can almost get away with making certain mistakes. Not that I'm saying that you should use it as an opportunity to do so, but I say to coaches sometimes that if a player understands that you're trying with good intention, as you put it, if you're trying, players and parents in particular, they can excuse, uh, if you like, what might be perceived as a failure to, to achieve in that moment. Because they they know it's coming from a good place, right? So they're more they're more you get the patience, you get the grace of um, their empathy and their compassion to say, actually, do you know what? We're in this together. Whereas if they if they feel like this is just a show or actually it's not genuine, you're always going to fall fall flat on your face, right? As soon as something goes wrong, you're going to be the one that gets outcasted. And I think it, whether it's young players, whether it's older players, as long as they know you're coming from a good place, and fundamentally, I think. I, I'd like to believe, and this might be an idealistic view, but that we all as coaches are there with good intention, but maybe mm. not always fully aware of how much our good intention is actually being demonstrated, if it is at all, and the perception of that. So, you know, just just talking about that, you know, and I'm conscious of time as well. In, in your experiences, have you had 
those moments where you've had coaches where you haven't felt that they're genuine, they're not, you know, the, the, the intention isn't there, and it is much more egotistical rather than, like I said, a place of service that they're coming from. Uh, yeah, you see that. Look, you see this happen in different spaces as well. You know, you'll see. Uh, quite often with young sports teams, you'll see a parent who comes in who who wants the best for their child to be able to achieve something. And so their intention is sometimes too much around their what the vision they want for their own child. Uh, when we see and we talk, you know, when we talk about high performance, a coach who moves up to a high performance role, we see two things normally happen. And a good example of this is in rugby. Ian Foster is the current coach of the All Blacks. Now, he came from a run with Steve Hansen where he went, where they went 92%. That was their, they had a 92% success rate, which is phenomenal in any professional or international sport. And he came over and what happened in the situation was he surrounded himself with people that were slightly below him in his ability. So, and sometimes you'll see that, like coaches will surround themselves with people so they still sit up above. And it's it's a bit of an insecurity thing. But then you get those coaches that will surround themselves with people that are better than them and they're comfortable with that. And they're the ones who are successful. So going back to Ian Foster, in the beginning, he started losing a lot of games. And he was at a point where they were actually going to remove him last year and it and then they won a game against South Africa and all the players went to bat and went and saw the CEO and said, you're making the wrong move here. We all back this coach. There needs to be some changes. And and they all and I think he knew as well, the coach, but also the body did. They said, let's make the changes and this team's gonna rock this team's gonna really take off. And and they lost a game in the weekend, but they went eleven games unbeaten the season since then. So they're back on track, but they surround themselves with now better coaches than the head coach. Now he's in the right frame of mind. And so as a coach, it's important to surround yourself with people that know more than you. If that's the players, draw that out of them. Let them share when they've got more talent than you, more experience than you. Uh, I can. I talked to my dad the other day. My dad is a really successful coach. He got interviewed for the role in that team that went 16 years unbeaten uh, partway through it. And the caveat from the players were, um, you, you, if you get the role, you're the coach, but realize that in this team, there are greater expertise than you've ever had and have greater experiences. So yes, you're coach, but realize that you need to allow us to do certain things because we know how to do it. And we've got the expertise. And it was really, really powerful. And and I know it took my dad back. My dad's, you know, he's got, um, he's a very proud man, right? He's a very proud man, come a tough neighborhood. We had to fight for everything. And so, you know, a great lesson. I love talking to dad about that. And, you know, I'm sure at the time it rocked him, but he realized, you know what? I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You know what? I'm actually probably the least smartest person in the room, but I know how to make this team gel. And I can and I can I can get them into an environment where they can continue winning. And that doesn't mean that I'm the most important person in the room. I'm actually the least. Well, actually I think that's there's something really powerful within that, right? Because it also allows you to be in a position where you 
almost do take a step back and actually start to observe a little bit more around what's going on around you, right? And then you start to pick up, you know, piece to things together and draw on an external perception of all these experts, if you're like in the room, um, and where you can potentially connect the dots. And, you know, as many great leaders do, um, they're not often the source of the information, but they're the ones connecting the dots um, mm. and maybe delegating duties and tasks to each individual within the group or, or, or the wider teams, if you like. So I think there's, there's, there's actually so many benefits of that. But I think the biggest piece to kind of really take away from it is that there is a sense of self-awareness and reflection has gone on to actually what, where am I positioned in this, in this group? Yes, this yeah. is my role, but what can I actually bring to the table? Yes, this person's played, you know, a hundred odd games at an international level that I've never done. But actually, what experiences can I bring to the table that actually they've not done? And how do we, you know, um, amalgamate the two things together so that everyone is bringing their own thing? And if we're, I'm just thinking out loud, and it just takes me back to one of my first experiences working in a club at an elite level, if you like. And it was. One of the first things I saw, there was a bit of conflict between the coaches and the people from different departments. And I thought to myself, why? Everyone's here for a reason, right? And if we're, if we're all in different departments and we're all considered experts in different roles and areas of the game or areas of development, so why don't we lean on one another so that we can maximise that? Because there's going to be things mm-hmm. that you know that I just I just haven't had the opportunity to learn yet. And vice versa, right? Um, some of the things that can't necessarily be taught unless you've experienced them, some of them actually... You can't you can't learn unless you study them. Um, so why not blend those things together and actually, if you've got the overall person kind of composing the orchestra in that respect, then you know that, 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 that there should be some magical outcomes if you get the right people in the in place. Yeah, and I look if I look back to my career so far, with a and whether I'm in a CEO role or a facilitating role or a specifically named coaching role. Um, by the way, I'm always coaching. <laughs> that, that's my philosophy, and no matter what I'm doing. But it is, you know, those times where I fell into leading role rather than when I should have been following is where I made the biggest mistakes and had the biggest learnings. To be off, uh, to be, to be really honest. And you, know, you know, I still remember one of those being a 15-year-old kid who I. For whatever reason, I, I remember what it was. I was chasing too hard to achieve something with the team. I was trying too damn hard. And instead of sitting in a space where I should have been following at that moment, I was trying to lead. And I was trying to lead too much. And it actually created conflict. And that 15-year-old kid gave me one of the best reality checks of my life. You know, I had to eat some real humble pie. And so, you know, we're all going to make mistakes along the way. You know, to me, you only fail if you make the same mistake twice and you're not learning from it. And so we're always going to make mistakes. But we've, we've, and if we do that when we're supposed to be following and rather than being the pure leader at that moment, make sure you damn well learn from it and let your pride go, right? Pride, pride can get in our way so often, so often. And so just, just consider those moments where, and how can you make everyone else feel like the most interesting people in the room rather than yourself? 100%. Craig, it's been a really insightful conversation. Where we've gone in so many different directions. I'm sure there's a, a hell of a lot more that could go into it because I'm starting to think about so many things. Before, but before we jump into that rabbit hole, 
I just want to say thank you for your time really today and I really much appreciate it. Um, and if you've got any final messages that you want to leave the listeners. Yeah, I think the I think the important thing for me, and I love talking about this, and that is the importance of being relentless in the pursuit of excellence and the pursuit of developing talent, the pursuit of uh, helping people fulfill their potential. But we need to be relentless without being ruthless or reckless. And so when it comes to be relentless in that drive for seeking something, we need to understand that's not 24-7. So the relentless approach means, and from a high performance, know when to switch off, know when to recover, know when to allow people to step up and be in their roles and you to step back and be the follower or the eagle looking above. But don't go into a space of ruthlessness where you take no prisoners, where the ruthless is you're coming along no matter what the consequences are to the people around you, what the collateral damage may be. Always protect the people around you and including yourself. And then make sure you're not being reckless. You know, always be aware of the consequences and please don't be careless of the consequences. You know, the only time I have potentially that I can actually, cons- <laughs> there is one instance that may be different to this, and I think it's Michael Jordan. I do not think that the Chicago Bulls would have got six titles in that dynasty they had if Michael Jordan hadn't been relentless, ruthless, and reckless to win those titles. However, the collateral damage that's occurred after that to certain individuals I kind of sit back and wonder, was it all worth it? I mean, I love seeing the Chicago Bulls do what they did. They certainly didn't have the most talented, gifted teams that were in the NBA at the time, mm-hmm. but they damn well knew how to win because that of that approach that Michael Jordan had and obviously the support of Phil Jackson working together. But that was one of the few times where I think you go beyond just being relentless to achieve something. Yeah. And I'm conscious I don't want to dump, dump into another rabbit hole here, but I think the one thing I would say on it is, though, is that sometimes not just the price for that success. Yeah. Yeah, and look, but but my question is, can can we do it without there being a cost, a collateral damage to people or someone along the way? Yeah, there might be to the other teams, but you can't control it. You can only control your environment but the people you look after and protect as a coach your job is to protect the human first i think you're spot on again massive thank you craig i really appreciate your time today um i don't know if you want to let the listeners know where they can get in touch with you if you want if you want if they had any further questions or any of the work that you do uh thank you uh, I'm always on LinkedIn. I share a lot of insights and thoughts on LinkedIn uh, and other social medias, but that's my main one. And also craigjohns.com.au and speakersinstitutecorporate.com. You'll find me at any of those places. Thank Amazing, you. Craig. Thank you again for your time. You're welcome. Real pleasure. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. 
We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.